Hey, everybody. You come here weekly to learn about huge headline-making cases of the past, but did you know that this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for my firstborn podcast, Accused? Accused from USA Today and the Cincinnati Inquirer is an investigative podcast that uses my skills as a journalist to dig deep into cases that police say are solved, but others disagree, and not just the suspects. Season four looks at the 1994 murder of a loving grandmother in her Ohio hotel room. The man convicted, Elwood Jones, has been on death row for nearly 30 years for a crime he says he didn't commit. We re-examine all the evidence, interview witnesses and experts, and find paths police didn't pursue. Follow Accused Season 4, The Impending Execution of Elwood Jones on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can binge all seven episodes ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Cincinnati Inquirer and USA Today subscribers can also listen early and ad-free by going to accusedpodcast.com. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The first time sailor Carl Panzram was mentioned in any U.S. newspaper, he was presented as an attention seeker, even a joke. One headline read, Tar arrested here confesses killings. There were quotation marks around the word confesses because authorities thought he was a blowhard talking shit. A wire story began, quote, Although inclined to doubt his confession that he had murdered two boys and had robbed the New Haven home of Chief Justice William Howard Taft of $40,000 in jewels in 1920, district police said today that they would question Carl Pandram, 38, Seaman, further regarding his amazing tale, end quote. It wasn't that Pandram seemed too kind to have committed crimes. In fact, he was in jail awaiting trial for serious crimes. Sodomy, burglary, robbery, attempted escape. But the supposed confession he gave was so outlandish, so brutal, that authorities thought he might just be a depressed dude trying a new version of suicide by cop. But then police verified one detail, then another, and wouldn't you know it, someone did rob former President William Taft's New Haven home back in 1920. The stolen jewels were probably only worth a few grand, rather than $40,000 as Pandram had bragged eight years later, but still, it lined up. Which was terrifying, because Pandram's full confession had barely begun. East Grand Forks, Minnesota, still had that new city smell when Charles L. Panzram was born there on June 28, 1891. The city had formed just across the border from the Dakota Territory in the late 1880s as a trading center after the Civil War. The Dakotas would split into two states in 1889. East Grand Forks was closest with North Dakota after the divorce. 
As anyone who's lived in that part of the country can attest, it can be beautiful there. But it can also be bleak. Pan's Ram's childhood fell consistently in the latter category. Nicknamed Carl, he was the youngest of six children to immigrant parents. His father John was a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War who had come to America looking for riches. Instead, he ended up with his family on a nearly barren chunk of land that author Genevieve Ortiz describes as a straight-up dirt farm. By the time Pandram was born, his mother Lizzie was in her 40s and often sick, sometimes too weak to pay any attention to her crying child. When Pandram turned two, the country was in the grips of the Panic of 1893, a severe economic collapse triggered by word that two huge national employers were struggling, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad and the National Cordage Company. People, well, panicked and rushed to take their money out of banks, which led to the failure of hundreds of banks plus the failure of Wall Street brokerage houses. Businesses and manufacturers couldn't open because they had no money to pay workers or buy materials. The unemployment rate blew past 10% nationwide. While the acute panic ended in November 1893, the economic depression that followed it lasted four long years. And those years were not kind to John Panzram, who in turn was not kind to his family. He was the kind of man who beat his wife and kids while quoting scripture and downing scotch. So maybe it's not a surprise that... It didn't take long for Carl to find trouble. This is Todd Grande, a PhD who delves into mental health topics on his YouTube channel with nearly a million subscribers. He dedicated an episode to Pandram in August of 2020. Sometime around the age of five or six, he was already stealing and lying pathologically. For which he was, of course, beaten. Which wasn't much of a deterrent, by the way. There's a reason it fell out of fashion to beat your kids. It doesn't work. When Carl was eight, John left the family altogether. His oldest three kids soon moved out too, leaving mom Lizzie with her remaining daughter and youngest two sons to work on the dirt farm. Carl hated this. He was abused and he got the hard work, you know, and they kept him out in the fields after the sun went down. This is Henry Lesser, a prison guard who got to know Carl pretty well back in 1928. Here, Lesser's being interviewed decades later in a program hosted by San Diego State University. Around the same time his dad ditched the family, Carl landed himself in a bit of legal trouble. Carl was arrested for drunk and disorderly in 1899, so eight years old. My son is eight, and this blows my mind. The year after this arrest, Carl suffered an ear infection that morphed into mastoiditis, a serious bacterial infection affecting the bony air cells in the mastoid bone behind the ear. We don't see this much anymore because ear infections are typically treated with antibiotics nowadays, so they don't often mutate further. Carl's did, however, and the infection was life-threatening. His family was too poor to get good medical care, so according to Ortiz's book, The Butcher of Humanity, his mother Lizzie attempted a rudimentary surgery on her son as he lay on the kitchen table. Shocker, it went poorly. He would need a second surgery conducted by, you know, an actual doctor, but that didn't help much either. This was in a rural area. Ch- chance thought was a... Uh... General practitioner, you know, 
and perhaps under unsanitary conditions. Now, this wasn't well known at the time, but mastoiditis was more serious than it even seemed. That's because if the infection spreads from that mastoid bone, it can reach the brain, causing meningitis or abscesses. Those, in turn, could cause permanent brain damage. And there was evidence that Carl never fully healed from the infection. Years afterwards, he had the discharge from his ear. Whether this infection is even worth mentioning is up for debate, but we'll return to that later. What's not debatable is that Carl Pandram's path of destruction was being forged before he was even a teenager. He drank, he stole, he hit, and soon he'd be doing far, far worse. I'll pause here for a content warning. Books about this man's crimes often reference sodomy. But I want to be crystal clear that this isn't a violation of prudish sexual norms. The issue isn't the type of sex he liked. The issue is that he viciously forced that sex onto people, both men and women, though men more often, and sometimes even little boys. To keep this from being impossible to stomach, I won't get detailed about these rapes, but I also don't want to sanitize it the way I've seen other writers do. He might be charged with sodomy in a lot of these cases, but make no mistake, the crime he was actually accused of and to which he gloatingly confessed was rape, which he claims he learned all about thanks to his first stint in reform school, which came in 1903 when he was 11. He was arrested again in 1903 for being drunk and incorrigible. So disorderly just wasn't going to cut it anymore. He was arrested again in 1903 for being drunk and incorrigible. That same year, he would steal a revolver from the house of one of his neighbors, and he would be sent to the Minnesota State Training School in Red Wing, Minnesota. This was a juvenile detention facility. Already at home, Carl had been subjected to harsh punishment from his mother, Lizzie, who was very much in the spare the rod, spoil the child camp. But it was apparently child's play compared to what he would endure at Red Wing. When he was there, he was not only beaten and tortured, but was the victim of repeated assaults. Those assaults included rape. Years later, as an adult, Carl would write an autobiography of sorts, from which comes a lot of what we know about him, which could mean that some of it, at least, is bullshit. I'm not sure I'd trust this guy as a reliable narrator. But enough of it has been confirmed that we can be comfortable he was at least in the same zip code as the truth. By his own writing, he said that what he endured at this reform school changed the course of his life, and not for the better. It was there that... I began to learn about man's inhumanity to man. That terrifying voice is actor John DiMaggio, no relation to baseball great and Simon and Garfunkel muse Joe... In 2011, John DiMaggio, best known as the voice of Bender on Futurama, served as Panzram's voice in an indie film that relied heavily and creepily on Panzram's own writings. They started me off by trying to beat the Christian religion into me. The consequences were that the more they beat and whipped me, the more I hated them and their damn religion. This audio is obviously so over the top, it's kind of cringy. It's useful because it's Panzram's own words, but really, as far as we know, Panzram sounded more like a Fargo character than Satan incarnate. In fact, it's more likely that he did, because if he sounded like DiMaggio makes him sound, no one would have ever let him near them, much less in close enough proximity to hurt them. 
Anyway, while in that reform school, what he endured was nothing short of brutal. He started fantasizing about revenge. To that end, he committed his first arson, burning one of the Red Wing buildings to the ground, though the deed was never formally pinned on him. He got away with it and, in fact, was released back home soon after, declared reformed by those in charge. According to Carl, though... I'd been taught by the Christians how to be a hypocrite. I'm sorry, I just can't with this performance. Here's engineer extraordinaire Garrett Tiedemann reading Panzeram's writings instead. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went, and everybody I could as long as I lived. And so, once he was released... Carl continued to commit thefts, and he was drinking heavily by this point. He tried to kill a teacher with a revolver. By age 14, he ran away from home. He'd hop freight trains and steal from other passengers, rob hobo camps, then hop another freight train. Supposedly, a group of vagrants befriended him on one of these trains, offered him food and friendliness, and then they beat and gang-raped him. So we see here that Carl was quite violent, but he was also the victim of violence. This cycle has fascinated historians and sociologists who study the guy because of the whole nurture versus nature debate. Maybe Carl would have been a violent piece of shit regardless, or maybe... He became the extreme version of those who committed crimes against him. Hard to say. Regardless, it probably doesn't mean much to his victims. And there were a lot of them. Carl Panzram's long list of victims started accruing while he was still in that reform school, which is when he began beating and raping anyone he could dominate. His fury, he said, was directed at those who beat and raped him, but since he clearly couldn't overpower those people... I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. Those are harmed were weaklings, either mentally or physically. On the occasions he did target someone capable of fighting back, he would befriend them, lying to them to get their trust, and then lead them into a trap. Then, when they were either asleep or drunk or otherwise helpless, he would attack. Seldom do you hear someone brag so heartily about attacking the weak, but Panzram boasted without remorse. He said he learned at a very young age when he was in reform school, Minnesota, that might makes right. Yeah. And he felt he had a right to take it out on anybody, which is a horrible thing, but he, had, he felt he had a right to get out on anybody. Panzram's first kill was, according to him, while in that first reform school. There's no record of who it was. All we know is that Panzram described the boy as maybe 12 years old, and he apparently got away with a crime. After he ran away from home and got assaulted by that group of vagrants, he committed burglary in Montana, landing him in another reform school there. Again, the worse he behaved, the more he was beaten. The more he was beaten, the worse he behaved. In 1905, he and a fellow inmate named Jimmy Benson escaped that school, then joined forces on the outside. Benson taught Panzram how to most effectively rob people during a stick-up. In return, Panzram taught Benson the fine art of arson. The two headed east together and wreaked as much havoc as they could manage. Sometimes it was to benefit themselves, like when they stole money from church donation boxes, while other times it was just to be jerks. 
like when they cut holes in the bottom of boxcars so that the harvested wheat being transported inside would spill out as though the trains were leaving breadcrumb trails across the country. The duo spent about a month together before splitting somewhere around North Dakota. By then, they had committed too many crimes to count. Panzram wasn't sure what to do next. Then he got what must have felt was an ingenious idea. He decided to enlist in the military. The idea hit him when he encountered an army recruiter while searching for food in Helena, Montana. He figured that the army might be a place where his bent toward violence might be embraced rather than punished. He was only 16 at the time, too young to legally join, so he lied about his age, which wasn't hard because by this time, he was a tall, beefy young man who'd been knocked around by life a bit and looked older than he was. It didn't take long for Pandram to realize that he and the army might not gel after all. See, his superiors had the audacity to give him orders and assign him jobs. Right after he got his uniform and army haircut, he was assigned to scrub the outhouses, and he flat out refused. Then, when a superior handed him a copy of the Articles of War, Pantram destroyed it. That got him in trouble for a week. And then he stole a bunch of stuff. I was only in the Army a month or two when I got three years in the U.S. military prison at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Interesting side note, William Howard Taft was, at this point, U.S. Secretary of War, and in that position, he got final say over Pantram's sentencing. Apparently, Pandram took note. In his later writings, Pandram bemoaned his treatment in prison. My part was to load my iron ball, an 18-pound hammer, a pick and a shovel, and a six-foot iron crowbar all into a wheelbarrow and march behind the line of cons three months to the rock quarry, and there work for eight and a half hours in the hot Kansas sun busting big rocks. But all that treatment did one good thing for me. The harder they worked, mate, the stronger I got. Again, keep in mind that as badass as this guy tries to make himself sound, he targeted the vulnerable and weak. Panzram was discharged from the Leavenworth prison in 1910. By this time, William Howard Taft had ascended to the presidency for the single term he would serve. Panzram, meanwhile, said he himself had become the spirit of meanness personified. Soon after, he was arrested in Texas while riding atop a mail train with two pistols. Under the pseudonym Jeff Davis, he was convicted of vagrancy. He served 65 days before he escaped. Next, he was arrested in Fresno, California for stealing a bike. For that, he got four months in jail. It was about this time that he had started committing more rapes than he could count. He said he attacked men of all races, all ages, tall, short, didn't matter. He wrote that his only firm criterion was that they were human beings. That he wasn't arrested for those isn't surprising, I guess. For starters, he killed some of the victims after assaulting them. But even those who survived didn't seem to speak up. It's still difficult today for men to report having been assaulted I can't imagine how stigmatized they would have felt in the early 1900s, especially when, at that time, the act forced upon them was illegal in all 50 states. But burglaries were reported plenty, and Pandram seemed to be fairly sloppy at them. He was arrested for some in Historia, Oregon, to which he agreed to plead guilty in exchange for leniency. 
But after Panzerim entered his plea, prosecutors reneged on their end of the deal. This perturbed Panzerim, so he managed to get himself out of his cell, locked his fellow prisoners inside of theirs, plugged the locks so no one could get in or out, and trashed the jail. Eventually, he landed behind bars in Salem, Oregon. You might be wondering how he was in and out of so many places. Well, he used an alias much of the time. People had no idea that the guy arrested in 1905 for burglary was the same guy arrested in 1910 with two pistols. Had they pieced it together, maybe a judge along the way would have hit him with a harder sentence or a warden might have kept a better eye on him, especially considering how many jails and prisons he'd escaped. But swapping identities back in this era was pretty easy peasy. And so his cycle continued through most of the 19-teens. He escaped, was arrested again for another crime, incarcerated, and then he was released. Then he was incarcerated in Oregon again. He helped another inmate escape from the Oregon State Penitentiary, and that prisoner killed the warden. Carl would escape from that prison in 1917. He was recaptured, and he escaped again in 1918 by sawing through the bars. I imagine this caused the prison to reconsider their hacksaw for every prisoner policy. There's always that one guy who ruins hacksaws for all for everyone else. Even when he wasn't trying to escape, Pandram was far from a model prisoner. Now, after his 1918 escape, Pandram said he decided to take a show on the road. He traveled to some 31 countries in South America, Europe, and Africa. And on each new continent he visited, he left a trail of rape and murder victims. Considering that World War I was coming to a close at this time, it's not surprising that those victims went largely unnoticed. In the summer of 1920, Panzram ended up in New Haven, Connecticut, where he broke into a house that happened to belong to William Howard Taft. By this point, Taft had been voted out of the White House seven years earlier and was poised to become appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. By the way, he's the only person who has served in both roles, at least as of this recording. Evidently, Taft had a lot to steal. Carl took bonds, jewelry, and a semi-automatic pistol, specifically a 45 caliber Colt M1911. Panzram estimated he stole some $40,000 in jewelry and bonds, plus another three grand in cash. With that cash, he bought a yacht called the Acosta. He was solo on board for a few days, but then decided he should hire some help. Whenever I saw a couple who were about my size and seemed to have money, I would hire them to work on my yacht. I always promised big pay and easy work, but the yacht was something else. And when something like this... He would hire the men to work, ply them with alcohol while on board, then rape them, rob them, and shoot them in the head, with Taft's gun no less, before throwing their bodies overboard. They're there yet, ten of them. And no one had a clue, nor would they have, had Pandram opted to keep quiet. The truth started to surface in 1928. At this point, 37-year-old Carl Pandram had been in and out of reform schools and prisons his entire life. In that time, he said just two people showed him any noteworthy kindness. The first was an Oregon jail warden named Charles Murphy, nicknamed Spud. 
Murphy decided that maybe Pandram wasn't as tough as he seemed and just needed some compassion. To that end, he granted Pandram unsupervised outings if Pandram agreed to return willingly at the agreed-upon time. The idea was that entrusting Pandram with that freedom would help quell the fury that raged within him. And at first, it seemed to work. Pandram would leave, tool around doing God knows what all day, and then return at day's end. But then, Pandram got drunk and failed to show up. Certain that Spud Murphy would turn on him, Pandram ran rather than show up late. It took a week for the sheriff and some deputies to track him down, and when they did, he tried to kill them. According to Henry Lesser in an interview from the 1970s, He had a gun, and he uh, aimed it at the sheriff. It didn't go off. And then he uh, was very remorseful after, after he was taken back to the prison. He had guilt feelings, you know, about doing this to Spud Murphy. Mm-hmm. So that's about the only time he reacted, yeah, sure, yeah. normally, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, the trust had been... Murphy, been yeah, been Murphy had done so much for me. Pantram's stunt cost Murphy his career. Henry Lesser was the second guy to supposedly show him kindness. Lesser was a new prison guard when he met Pandram, who had a reputation. I uh, happened to hear that there was a, uh, a prisoner in the South Wing where I was working at that time who seemed to be a very interesting person. And the uh, first opportunity, I went uh, past his cell and uh, got talking to him. Uh, he seemed to be friendly. And... Uh, I asked him, what was his racket? And he said, how do you know I have a racket? Lesser played things cool and basically said, I don't know, I just have a feeling. Despite Pandram's rough exterior... He was a uh, husky man. Uh, He walked with a limp. Lesser said he seemed nice enough. But soon after this encounter, Pandram tried to escape the prison and failed. His punishment was outright torture. He was tied by his arms to a supportive beam and dangled inches off the ground for hours. It was so harsh that the warden instructed the prison doctor to check on the prisoner every hour to make sure he was still alive. This lasted all night, two nights in a row. In between stints of torture, Pansram was kept in the death row wing of the prison, even though he hadn't, at that point, been sentenced to die. The worst charge he faced was burglary. I was told about the, uh, the torture of Pan's Ram, and uh, I almost hit the ceiling. I was greatly distressed about it. I felt he was a man in the clutches of the law, and they had no right to do what they did to him. Lesser said he knew that Pan's Ram had no money to buy anything from the canteen, so he recruited one of his friends who worked on the death row wing to pass along a dollar to Pan's Ram. The idea being that it would allow Pandram to buy himself some smokes or candy. When the guard slipped Pandram the dollar, he made a point to say it came from Henry Lesser. And he, uh, Pandram got very excited and, and uh, used a great many expletives. Said, uh, what the hell are you trying to do? Kid me? Christ's sakes. God, interest in me, send me a dollar. Cut it out, will you? And uh, this man uh, assured him that that, that happened. Pansram, who'd had such an antagonistic relationship with guards his whole life, asked the intermediary how long Lesser had been a guard. Not long, he was told, maybe nine months to a year. And Pansram retorted, wait, wait, he's here another year, year and a half, it'll be just as bad as the rest of them. 
But Lesser believed wholeheartedly in treating the prisoners like human beings, even if they had done inhuman things. His philosophy was that they deserved respect. He shook their hands. He chatted with them amiably. He did the same with Pandram, who, remember at this point, was in prison for burglary. Sure, he was known to be violent because of his escape attempts and run-ins with guards and cellmates, but the extent of his crimes was a complete mystery until Lesser encouraged him to share his full story. I felt he had a story to tell. I had an idea that he had something to tell us. And I encouraged him to write his autobiography. And he demurred. He said, Jesus Christ, I can't do that. I went to school and out of the sixth grade. I've never written. And I said, you, you start it, start it. And I encouraged him. It took a couple of weeks until he finally started writing. The two devised a system. After writing 10 to 20 pages, Pandram would leave a bundle of papers on the bar of his cell, which Lesser would retrieve when making his overnight rounds. Every stack he received, Lesser would smuggle out to read. And it wasn't more than a week, uh, 10 days, but I felt I had something worthwhile. But before Lesser could contemplate what to do with the writings, Pandram felt he should fess up to some of his crimes. That's when he stepped forward to confess that he killed a young boy, little Henry McMahon, in Salem, Massachusetts. Henry had last been seen July 18, 1922, walking down Highland Street with a stranger. One of his classmates and the classmate's mother spotted the little boy holding hands with a burly man they'd never seen before. Because the two were walking in the direction of a swimming hole, Authorities feared Henry had drowned when his mother reported that he never came home that night. They drained the swimming hole to no avail. Then, three days after Henry disappeared, another boy was picking berries in a swamp with his mother when the two spotted a body partially concealed by the underbrush. What Pandram had done to the child was beyond brutal. He raped the boy, choked him to unconsciousness, then beat him in the head with a rock until he was dead. I left him laying there with his brains coming out of his ears. A few days later, he attacked another boy in New Haven. That one, he strangled with a belt after assaulting him. While newspapers did report a murder matching those descriptions in 1923, the victim was never identified. Then Pandram confessed to another slaying, that of a boy in Philadelphia. That victim was 14-year-old newsboy Alec Uzaki, whose decomposed body had been discovered in August of 1927. Just as Pandram had described, Alec's body had been wrapped in a blanket and left near the riverfront. The once dubious news stories shifted. One read, quote, After days of skepticism, in which Pandram was believed by headquarters detectives to be but a crazy liar, Washington authorities were convinced that the strange ape-like man crouching in his cell must be telling the truth, end quote. In his confessions, Pandram wrote, quote, I hate the whole human race and would like to kill everybody. He also said, I have been going around murdering people for the past 18 years, and I think it's time someone murdered me. He also said he'd once hatched a plan to kill thousands of people by poisoning the water of a reservoir. Another time, he said he had imagined rigging a bomb at a busy train station to take out hundreds at a time. 
In November 1928, finally facing trial for the burglary that brought him into Henry Lesser's orbit, Pandram would serve as his own attorney, which, as we all know, is always a great idea. According to The Wire story, quote, In acting as his own attorney, he threatened one witness with death and broke into a long speech declaring, I don't have any faith in man, God, or the devil. I've executed several people in my time and will execute more, end quote. He was sentenced to 25 years. In all, Pandram confessed to 21 murders and claimed some 1,200 rapes. He would be tried for none of them. Rather, in 1929, he attacked the foreman of the prison laundry with a flat iron, bludgeoning 47-year-old R.E. Warnke to death. Then he chased around his fellow inmates until another guard overpowered him. The incident seemed to kick off unrest at the prison. Less than two weeks later, prisoners mounted an insurrection that, while quickly quashed, left one inmate dead and three others injured. It was for Warnke's murder that Pandram finally went down. He was convicted and sentenced to death, a judgment he didn't bother to argue. In fact, he said he wanted to die. So it pissed him off when a group called the Society for the Abolishment of Capital Punishment tried to intervene to save his life. He wrote them a terse letter, which read in part, I have deliberately and intentionally made my choice. I choose to die here and now by being hanged by the neck until I am dead. I look forward to that as a real place, and a big relief to me. I prefer that I die that way, and if I have a soul, and if that soul should burn in hell for a million years still, I prefer that to a lingering, agonizing death in some prison dungeon, or a padded cell in a madhouse. Pansram got his wish. On September 5th, 1930, he was led from his cell to the gallows at Leavenworth. As officers tried to cover his head with a black hood, he's said to have spat in the executioner's face. Then he complained that his killing was taking too long. To the executioner, he said, Hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could hang a dozen men while you're screwing around. Or maybe he said he could kill a dozen men. Accounts vary. Anyway, Lester held on to Panzeram's notes and letters with plans to eventually release them in book form as a cautionary tale about how prison systems' brutality can turn men into monsters. But publishers of the day found it too shocking, too revolting, and it would take 40 years before the writings would be published. When they were, it was as part of the book Killer, A Journal of Murder by Thomas E. Gaddis and James Long. The book would be turned into a TV movie in 1995, with actor Robert Sean Leonard portraying Lesser and James Woods as Pansram. I haven't seen it. Today, Pansram is reputed to be the evilest serial killer in American history. It's hard to say if that reputation would have been born without his own self-aggrandizing writings. Regardless, one of the biggest mysteries about him is whether he would have turned out as awful a person as he was if he hadn't been exposed to so much brutality in his youth. Lesser didn't think so. In fact, he believed it's possible Pandram's childhood bout of mastoiditis might have been to blame for his behavior. It could have been this infection in the brain, among other things, that could have had something to do with his temper tantrums, you know, getting excited, losing his head, and so on, and his assaults, and so on. Possibly. 
Pandram, for one, probably would have co-signed that theory because that guy never took responsibility for anything he did. When you read his confession, this stands out. It was always someone else's fault. Everyone else was to blame for the choices he made. Today, Pansram remains buried in the old Leavenworth prison graveyard, his tombstone bearing only his prison number. To research this story, I read this jerk's writing as well as a lot of contemporary news coverage. I also read the book The Butcher of Humanity, The True Story of Carl Panzram, a Product of Hatred and Vengeance by Genevieve Ortiz. Special thanks to Garrett Tiedemann for stepping in front of the mic to read Panzram's writing in a normal human voice. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.